Parents know kids aren't just little adults. That's why I take mine to the one place with world-renowned doctors who treat children and only children, Boston Children's Hospital. See why U.S. News & World Report ranks us the number one pediatric hospital at bostonchildrens.org parents. From WBUR Boston and Slate, hello and welcome to The Checkup, Greatest Hits Edition, our solidly reported and also somewhat opinionated take on health news you and your family can use. I'm Carrie Goldberg, co-host of the Common Health blog at WBUR.org. And I'm Rachel Zimmerman, also co-host of the Common Health blog. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Carrie. Well, summer is officially here, and so we present to you our summer podcast series, The Checkup Greatest Hits Edition. And we call today's episode... High Anxiety. As in high levels of all kinds of anxiety all around us. Carrie, tell me if I'm wrong here, but doesn't it feel like pretty much everyone you know has some kind of anxiety disorder? Rachel, you are not wrong here. If not a full-blown disorder, at least some form of persistent anxiety. I I can't tell if the numbers are actually going up or if it's just because we're all getting older or because there's more acceptance of anxiety as a disorder. I don't know either, but anxiety disorders taken together affect about 40 million American adults 18 or older. So that's about 18% of the population. And it's actually worse for us. Mm -hmm. Women are 60% more likely than men to experience an anxiety disorder over their lifetime. Rings true. And that's a whole lot of anxiety all around. Now, we'll get into the gender divide a little later. But first, Rachel, let's talk about you and a very particular kind of anxiety you faced not too long ago, the fear of flying. Actually, I'm supposed to get on a plane tomorrow and I am totally (laughs) freaking out. Hang hang in there. Yeah, just thinking about it makes my heart race and my hands get clammy. (sighs) I hate to admit it, Carrie, but when I get on a plane, I turn into a kind of Woody Allen character. We may experience some turbulence. Please keep your seatbelts fastened and make sure all trays are in an upright position. Great turbulence, my favorite. No, if you just relax and stop clenching your fists. I can't unclench when there's turbulence. You know, I'm an atheist. <laughs> I, I don't like this. Now, Rachel, I can assure you that you're far less nebbishy than Woody Allen. Thank you, Carrie. Mm-hmm. But I also know you have really suffered with this fear. And at one point, it seemed like it was actually beginning to like take over your life. It was bad, Carrie. I did stuff like cancel family trips at the last minute. I've pretended to be sick in order not to fly. And I even dragged my kids on a 30-hour train ride from Boston to Orlando. 30 hours. The ultimate, like, are we there yet? Oh, yeah. It sounds like a nightmare. But before you go on, surely you're not alone in this fear of flying. I mean, how many other people suffer from this? A 2008 study published in the Journal of Anxiety Disorders said fear of flying is estimated to affect 25 million adults in the U.S., and nearly 10 to 40% of the adults in industrialized countries. So that's a lot of people not enjoying flying. (laughs) And the NIH estimate is that over 6% of Americans fear flying so intensely that it qualifies as a full-blown phobia or anxiety disorder. Wow. But now, in your case, you weren't always afraid to fly, were you? No, that's the thing. When I was single, I was a reporter, and I flew all over the world for work to Africa, Vietnam... 
I once flew to Cuba in one of those Russian planes that was like lined with duct tape. <laughs> one time I flew a domestic flight in China and the pilot told everyone to get up and move to the right side of the plane to balance the plane. Like, <laughs> uh, hello. That doesn't exactly inspire confidence, but it, it didn't rattle you. A little, but not enough to keep me on the ground. So then what happened? Well, what happened was that I was walking to work across the Brooklyn Bridge on September 11th, 2001, and I saw that second plane hit the World Trade Center. Wow, crazy. But for me, what really crystallized my fear was a year later when I became pregnant with my first child, and that's when my fear really took off. So to speak. So to speak. And then over the next 10 years, I didn't go to weddings, I said no to work trips, to romantic vacations. I always had a fairly legitimate excuse not to fly, but in reality, it was all about my fear. But there are plenty of people who take drugs to fly or who just never fly, and that's how they manage their anxiety. Right. But I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be gripped by fear, cooped up in my little bubble. And even more importantly, I didn't want my children to see me that way. That's important. I met with one therapist who had me close my eyes and pretend I was in bad turbulence. You know, that didn't really work because there I was sitting on the couch and it was fine. (laughs) So then another doctor gave me all these fact sheets about airline safety and maintenance records and taking my kids on a plane is much safer than driving them to school, which I do pretty much every day without a care in the world. Right. I'm actually much more afraid of driving than flying. Right. Of course, that is the rational way to think. But for me, the only thing that actually helped was doing consistent exercise through all that. And that's what enabled me to at least get on a few flights during those years. Uh So, So you were somewhat managing this anxiety, but you were still gripped by fear every time you had to fly. So what did you do next? Well, my family had a chance to go to Greece. And I found this woman, Luana Marquez, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. She works at Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Anxiety and Stress Disorders. And she wrote a book called Almost Anxious. The book is precisely aimed at people who may not meet the textbook criteria for a full-blown anxiety disorder, but nevertheless have debilitating symptoms. That sounds just like you. Yes, it's a book for me. (laughs) So Luana Marquez specializes in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. You've probably heard of it. Mm -hmm. And it's based on the idea that it's a person's own thoughts, not external events so much, that cause certain feelings and fear and behavior. CBT basically helps you identify those distorted, irrational thoughts. The plane's going to go down because it's drizzling. (laughs) Um, And you together figure out new ways to frame and think about these fraught situations. And of course, you've got to get on a plane. Mm -hmm. Exposure therapy is key. Mm -hmm. So that's CBT in general. But in your case, what did you do with the therapist? Well, she had me book the flight to Greece. So I was locked in. I started keeping a worry diary and I'd write out every single fear that popped into my head. I'd write down all of my fears, and you begin to see how far-fetched some of these thoughts really are. And you just do like a constant reality check. You pinpoint your crazy thoughts, and you reframe them by saying, you know, I've been flying all my life, and it's been okay. Knock on wood. And you ended up getting triumphantly onto the plane to Greece. I did. Now, I was frantically texting my therapist and driving my family crazy, but 
I did get on the plane. And you told me that on the flight home, you actually started thinking about where you'd go next. Yeah, it was an incredible trip, and I just wanted more once I'd gotten there. Indeed, Rachel, but let's just hold up there a minute and take a little time for a message from our sponsor. When our son broke his arm, we didn't think he needed special attention. I didn't when I broke mine. But it was easy to see a doctor at Boston Children's Hospital, so we went. They noticed the break was on his growth plate. That meant a little fracture could have been a lot more serious. Now we wouldn't take him anywhere else. No matter what it is, simple or not so simple. Because nothing's more important to us than getting our kid back to being a kid again. See why U.S. News and World Report ranks Boston Children's Hospital the number one pediatric hospital at bostonchildrens.org slash parents. So, Rachel... All of this makes me think again about what you said earlier, that women are twice as likely to suffer from anxiety disorders as men. So why would that be? Is it like our roles in society, our psychology, or something about the very nature of being female? Those are all incredible questions, and I tried to get a little bit more to the bottom of that. I spoke to Mohamed Milad, an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He is director of the Behavioral Neuroscience Program at Massachusetts General Hospital, and he studies fear and anxiety disorders. Okay, so fear and anxiety. Let's first have a clear definition of the difference. Sure. Milad makes this very personal analogy. I was thinking about taking my kids camping over the summer. As I was reading about bears and potential bear encounters, take considerations for cover and put your food this distance away from your camping site, etc. Anxiety is when you're camping and your heightened awareness and hypervigilance is high. Right. That's anxiety. It's sustained, it's continuous, but it's not at the point where it makes you run or look for cover. Fear is when you see the bear. Fear is intense, it's immediate, it's right there in right. front of you. Okay, so when FDR said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, he was actually talking about anxiety. Well, Carrie, I never thought of it that way before, but I'd really like to get back to your question of why anxiety seems to be more of a problem for women than men. I asked Mohammed Milad how he got into this. When I was in grad school, we used to uh, host kids from middle school and elementary school and so on. We're showing the lab to them and showing them the rats. And then one kid, um, maybe 10, 12 years old, asked me whether these rats are male or female rats. Good Intrigued. question Good, for a Great question, right. right. And I said, well, they're all male rats. And he said, why? Well, what about the female rats? I didn't know what to say to that kid. And so I went to my mentor and he's like, why are we not studying females? And the answer was, simply put, they're just complicated. They're too complicated. They're too complicated. <laughs> but of course, since women are the ones who by far have these disorders, that yeah. becomes a problem, right? So I think that's not an acceptable answer now. So that led him into studying fear in rats and humans, both male and female. In one experiment, Malad and his team used Pavlovian conditioning. As in Pavlov's dogs, who were so famously conditioned into drooling every time they heard a bell because they associated that sound with food. Exactly. Milad's team repeatedly showed a blue light on a screen to men and women who would then receive a mild electric shock until they came to expect and fear the shock every time they saw the blue light. Okay, scary blue light. Right. So next, the researchers stopped giving shocks when they showed the blue light to teach the subjects not to fear it. That's called fear extinction. The next day, the men and women were tested to see if they still had a fear response to the blue light. And what did they find? 
Milad said the results were all over the place, but that most of the variance in fear response was among women in the experiment. The men, he found, were much more consistent. That's what got me into beginning to think about hormones, because what could account for that, other than maybe some women that we're bringing into the lab at a particular phase of their menstrual cycle. And when we did that study, we found that women who came in when their estrogen is elevated had their extinction capacity much better. In other words, they were able to control their fear or express much less fear compared to the women that came in in the early phase of the cycle, in other words, when they had low hormones. To simplify, high estrogen... Better control of fear. And low estrogen, more potent, longer-lasting fear. Right. Okay, Rachel, but if estrogen helps with fear extinction and women typically have more estrogen than men, then why aren't men racked with fear and anxiety all the time? Exactly. I asked Mohammed Malad the same question. That's our initial hypothesis. We thought that men would behave very much like women with low estrogen. Mm. When we got the data, I was puzzled because men behave very much like women with high estrogen. Okay. And only low estrogen women show deficits in the extinction, in the fear extinction. So what's going on with men? Well, what we we have learned is that testosterone in men, in the brain, gets converted to estrogen Uh by an enzyme called aromatase. Mm -hmm. So we think that a lot of the benefit that men get is, in fact, due to estrogen because of its conversion from testosterone to estrogen. Huh. So cool to think that a hormone often thought of as female could be so crucial to a characteristic that's stereotypically male. Makes you think, doesn't it? (laughs) It does. But I also wonder about all the women who take birth control pills, which, of course, interfere with the body's production of estrogen. So how does that affect their fear response? Well, Mohamed Milad did a study that found that women on the pill responded to fear much the same as women with low estrogen. In other words, taking synthetic estrogen for birth control seemed to impair women's ability to control or extinguish fear. And of course, we can't take any of this as gospel. All of the work on estrogen and fear extinction needs to be replicated on a much larger scale. But still, it's so interesting. So what's next for Mohammed Malad? Well, he's applied for funding for a study to see if women who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder might benefit from an estrogen pill alongside their more classic exposure therapy. But I don't think he'll be taking that camping trip with his kids he mentioned earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking about this bear thing. I I would be anxious if I'm in that park in the middle of the night. Alone with your kids. Did you end up going camping? No, of course not. Really? No, I will not. Oh, man. (laughs) I'm highly anxious. Oh, okay. (laughs) That makes sense. Rachel, you know how you can't go to any website without being asked to take a survey these days? I know, right? Well, why shouldn't our podcast get in on the act, too? Because it's annoying at worst and distracting at best. I I know, but there's an upside. The checkup is part of the Panoply Network, and our pals at Panoply want you, our listeners, to let us know about the podcasts you enjoy and how you listen to them. 
Okay, how long will this take? Really, just a couple of minutes, which is worth it if you want Panoply to bring you more podcasts like, well, like the Tech Up. I'm good with that. So to fill out the survey, just go to panoply.fm slash survey. Or you can click the link we've provided in the show notes for this episode. That's panoply.fm slash survey, or click the link in the show notes. And thanks. Okay, Carrie, this is feeling slightly lopsided. I have confessed <laughs> my deep-seated fear of flying. Now it's your turn. Okay, that is only fair. And I'm sure actually my anxiety problem is even more widespread than yours. It's the whole parental anxiety thing. <laughs> parental anxiety. Wait, can you be a parent without anxiety? No, but for those of us who don't tend to be anxious, it can be especially hard to deal with these unaccustomed fears that come with parenthood. I was a cool hand before I had kids, and now I'm a full-fledged phobic. You hide it well. But... <laughs> Thanks. But whenever a kid of mine gets sick, even with only a routine flu or a stomach virus, and even though they're pretty robust kids, I freak out. And like every cough makes my heart race. You're really neurotic about germs, Carrie. Let's face it. <laughs> I admit it. It's from being a health reporter, too. And I know that I'm far from alone in this. Like one otherwise sane mother I know still sleeps on the floor by her 14-year-old <sighs> son's bed oh, when he no. gets the flu to be sure he's breathing. And another, a college professor, says that three different pediatricians have prescribed a stiff drink for her whenever her child gets sick. Jeez, that makes me even look good. I once interviewed the anthropologist Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy about this, and she said it's really normal to get these catastrophic visions of something happening to your child. And she says maternal anxiety makes sense when you consider that throughout history, about half of children died. Yeah, but now we've got antibiotics, good plumbing. We do, but we've still got this hardwired fear. I mean, I've spoken with infectious disease experts who reminded me that it's a child's job to get sick to develop the immune system. Right. I've even spoken with pediatricians about how fevers are nothing to be afraid of, and really virtually all childhood infections pass with no lasting damage. Right, but when it's your kid and they're sick... <laughs> That's right. So did the reporting help you? Some. What helped most was just experience, was seeing that my kids really did get through one sickness after another. But I'm definitely not cured. So I turned to Sue Orsillo. She's the author of a new book, The Mindful Way Through Anxiety, and a professor of psychology at Suffolk University in Boston. And she's a mom. Yes. Yes? How many? I do. I have two. So, Sue, can you help people like me? Absolutely. Yay! So, How? We all experience fear and anxiety. It's very natural. You know, if your child was out in the street and you saw a car veering around the corner, that fear would tell you there's a threat present and it would get you ready to take action. Mm -hmm. So you have these clear emotions. Why people struggle with emotions is when those clear emotions become sort of muddy. What's the difference between a muddy emotion and a clear emotion? We have this sort of unique human ability to think about something that happened before to us or imagine something that could happen, like a terrible disease or you know something awful happening to our child, your emotion is saying, there's a threat, but it's a threat you're imagining, and there's not a clear action. Right, I mean, so it's like an emotion with nowhere to go. Exactly, right. absolutely. And we keep worrying, going through our mind, to try to figure out where to go, and there really is nowhere to go. Uh -huh. Your book is about mindfulness. So first, what is mindfulness? 
Most people define mindfulness as paying attention to the present moment with curiosity and compassion, just allowing the moment to be as it is. So it's being here and now, not being lost in your thoughts and imaginings. Or, or sort of noticing when you're doing that and then bringing your attention back to the here and now, even when the present moment is not like a perfect, beautiful moment. Yeah. Even if it's a moment of pain, that sort of letting go of that struggle against what's really happening right now, just like letting go of that can be calming. How do we use mindfulness to cope with muddy emotions? Normally, when we're in that cycle of a muddy emotion, we're not thinking about sort of, oh, here's a thought or here's a feeling. No, <laughs> you know, no, we're we're right it. there in it. We're sort of being pushed around by it. We're yeah. defined by it in some ways. With mindfulness, we can sort of take a step back and notice this is a thought. This is a feeling. Ask ourselves, is this a clear emotion? Is there an action to take? Or is this just sort of a natural part of being human? I'm trying to control the uncontrollable. Mm. And can I sort of gently acknowledge that? and bring my attention back to the present moment and the things I can do and the things that matter to me. So let's say that my child has a 103 degree fever and in my head what I'm saying is, if my child is gonna have something really bad, it will probably start like this. This is what I tend to feel in situations like this and what? This is just the way it is? Right, well no, I mean I think what, what sometimes happens that we're maybe not aware of is when we are feeling that way, partially we think it's really important for me to feel this fear because what if, what if, right. you know, I might do. But yeah. then there's another part of us that's like, oh, I wish I could just push this away. I don't want to feel this way. And those responses to our emotions also make them muddy and intensify them. Mm -hmm. There's this whole lot of research that shows the more you try not to think something and to try not to feel it, you feel and think it more, it lasts longer, and you're more distressed by it. So mm -hmm. definitely acknowledging it bring some compassion. It's hard to be a mom. It's hard to accept that there are steps we can take and then at some point we have to let go yeah. and sort of accept that's hard. Mm -hmm. So you can notice that you are feeling afraid and kind of acknowledge that and then bring your attention somewhere else. You're not trying to distract yourself. You're just sort of refocusing. One of the things that most rang true to me in your book was that you, you wrote about people who have almost a sort of like superstitious attitude toward sure. their fear. Absolutely. And I have exactly that. Like I feel that if I'm not afraid enough, then I won't catch something that could ultimately really hurt the child. And every time you worry superstitiously and the bad thing doesn't happen, that fear is strengthened, yes. right? So you've yes. got a lot of evidence that shows that being superstitious and worrying is wonderful. Certainly there's a cost to us, you know, the toll it takes on just being worried and sort of physically what it does to us. Sometimes it's hard to even think of that as an important cost. But again, I think it's what could you be doing if you weren't doing that? Mm -hmm. There was one thing that I think completely messed me up fairly early on, <laughs> yeah. which was that I mentioned to another mom that my daughter had a 103 degree fever and I was on the phone with the pediatrician and I was really concerned. And that mom said, oh, I don't know why you're so worried because actually my child has recently had 105 and the pediatrician said, oh, you know, don't worry about it. We're, we, we don't so much look at the numbers. And then not long afterwards, that child died. Oh, my God. That also reinforced that you better worry because that mom wasn't worrying and look what happened. Right. You know? Right. It's really difficult to 
sort of draw the line between problem solving and worrying, you know, because they look very similar. So what is sort of the appropriate way to respond when your child has a fever? Okay, I need to check this and that and the other. I might even need to really advocate because maybe my pediatrician is not hearing, you know, what I'm saying. And then there's this line where it then turns into worry. Then you can start to sort of see where that line is and you can start to sort of notice, like, is there a clear action I could take? And if there's not a clear action I could take, if I've taken all the actions I could, Mm -hmm. then maybe I need to sort of work on accepting. And to say, there you go again. (laughs) Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. And to model for our children, you know, how do they deal with things when they're not, you know, sure and they're feeling nervous. I mean, that that helps me too, you know, to when I think about what I'm teaching my children, I'm like, all right, I need to, you know, practice this. So do you say to them, you know, I'm worried, but I'm dealing? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I think in an age appropriate way, you know, whatever makes sense. But I think that's wonderful modeling because, you know, part of our issue is all of these things that we've been talking about, they're not about you. They're about being human, right? So all minds work this way. But when we're alone with this, we look at other people and we think they're not worrying. They sort of have it all together. And and our kids are the same way. When they see parents not talking about their own struggle, they don't really get to learn that. So it's really like we teach children about anything else. It's it's a way of teaching them, yeah, we feel these things, we think these things. You know, we can't always control them. And, you know, we just sort of acknowledge they're there and, you know, we, we carry on. It's <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. Yep. Great. <laughs> So, Carrie, it all sounds good. I mean, if nothing else, it sounds like you've got some new weapons in your arsenal. Right. And also a new approach to my own feelings when I'm all scared because my kid is sick. To step back and to look at what I'm feeling with that curiosity and compassion that's part of mindfulness. So stay tuned. I'll let you know if it works. Cool. So that's it for this episode of The Checkup. Join us next time for an episode we're calling Power to the Patient. We'll talk about how we can all take more control of our medical care, from the money we spend to our own medical records. The Checkup is produced at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station, by George Hicks, who also composed and performed our theme music. The executive editor of WBUR Podcasts is Iris Adler. Andy Bowers and Joel Meyer run Slate Podcasts. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. And I'm Carrie Goldberg. See you next time. See you, Carrie. See you, Rachel. Hi, this is Carrie. Please leave a message. Hey, Carrie. It's Rachel in hot, sultry Florida. Uh, I just wanted to tell you I arrived safely and it's all good until I have to think about flying home. Take care. See you soon. Bye.